Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Many of you will recognize this passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and through the world. And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or of a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we stand... I stand before you here. We sit in expectation together. We await your word. We listen to what has been given to us from the past. I pray that you would bless what I speak, that I would add that which guides us and directs us to a deeper knowledge of what you've already given us. I pray that your spirit would be with each of us as we interpret this text. Your son's name, amen. <clears throat> so, this final week of Christmas, before our Christmas Eve service, we get a chance to look at probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible. I would say we're in top 10 territory here. Um, and I want to think about this text as how it introduces us to Christmas. Because what this text does is it asks the question, who is Jesus Christ? 
And if we think about what the true meaning of Christmas is, we ask ourselves the very same question. Because the meaning of Christmas is the character of Jesus. This is the beginning of the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, those of you who are, who are more familiar with your New Testament may know that there's, there's three Gospels which are the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They cover a lot of the same territory. They retread a lot of the same stories. They, they, they're for different audiences, but the narratives are similar. And then comes John. John wrote his gospel much later. In fact, we believe that he had some of the other gospels at his disposal. He, he was literally looking at them and saying, now I write my memoir. Now I write my memoir. And the most important thing for me to write about as I look back on my life is not me at all. In fact, I'm in the background mentioned in only a few sections of the whole book, sort of slyly. As I look at my life's meaning, my whole memoir, everything that ever happened to me is about Jesus. And so the Gospel of John is a memoir that tells us about the character of Jesus. Whereas the other three Gospels tell us about what Jesus did and how he did it. John focuses on who Jesus is. How is it that he is God and man? It is the spiritual biography of Jesus. And so as we begin to tread through this story, we start the same place we started week one of Advent, in the beginning. We return. We return back. He returns. John says, I'm going to write a prologue, and in the prologue, I'm going to start right at the very beginning again. Except I'm going to give you a new perspective. I'm going to give you a new understanding because I lived through this and I get it now. I get that this man is more than the person who came at a certain time and was and died. No, because he rose again, because he is God, he was there in the beginning. And he says, in the beginning was the Word. Most of us have no comprehension. We, we just understand that the Word is Jesus. Those of us who grew up in faith understand when he talks about the Word, he's talking about Jesus. But we don't think about the fact that the Word is something that both Jewish rabbis would use to talk about God as a deity. They would synonymously say both the Word of God and God himself. They would be used interchangeably. So the Word of God was God. Right? So he's both saying that He's, he's, he's outlining the Trinity for us right here, and he's saying Jesus and God are one and the same Jewish audience who would know this. And then he's saying to the Greeks who talked about the Logos. The Logos is what this, the word in Greek means. He wrote this gospel in Greek, and he's saying to the Greeks who believed in this idea of the Logos, the word, as some form of sort of true deity essence, and he's sort of doing an apologetics here. He's sort of, he's sort of saying, look, Greeks, look, Jews, it's, you're looking at the same thing. The beginning of all of it is the word. Greeks, you're right. Jews, you're right. And yet all of you are totally wrong because here is what the word is. It's, it's a masterful yet simple start to his gospel. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God, Jewish audience, rabbis, the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. 
So already he's turning everything on its head. He's saying, I saw it with my own eyes. The man who I ate with, who I journeyed with, who I did life with, was the creator of the whole universe. I mean, can't that, like, that would have to blow your mind just penning those words to paper to be in John's shoes in that moment, to have that recognition of the gravity of what he's saying. And this is the other thing that's so interesting, is the Gospels are given to us in words. You know, we have illustrated Bibles, but we didn't get a set of paintings that tell us the story. We could have. God could have decided to have artists draw all of these things for us and give us a series of images. We could, we could have a movie, right? We have words. The beginning, the essence is words. And, you know, you think of a picture, a common adage for a picture is a picture is worth a thousand words, right? But in some ways, a picture is worth only a thousand words. Because think about when we tell a story, our source material, the best source material comes from the words, the essence. If you think about movies, right, movies that are made, a book that's written from a movie is usually a pretty terrible book, right? Like Star Wars started as movies. If you read the actual books for them, they're like pulpy. They're not, they're not very well written, right? Because they're derivative of the movie. But if you think about everything that we rehash over and over, I think of a story like Little Women, Jane Austen, or Wuthering Heights, Bronte. Like, you think of these stories, the book is written, it becomes classic. You can then create out of that, infinitely. You can imagine out of that, the essence of that. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Jesus came. We're celebrating Christmas and Jesus comes in the image of man. He comes in the image after he was the word. His image, his character, the man was limited. He was in time. He was temporal. He existed. And then he rose again and he left us. He was, he was just a glimmer. He was an iteration, a version, an understanding of something much, much, much bigger. And it was the way God chose for it to be was for him to be in man's image and descend with us. And here's our problem with Christmas. We lock Jesus in that image. When we think of Christmas, I almost threw a slide up of a nativity scene, right? Because when we think of Christmas, we think of Jesus, the baby in the manger. We don't think of Jesus, bloodstained, dying on the cross, but that's what we ought to think of when we think of Christmas. It's all one and the same. We are worshiping Jesus who descended down into the form of a fragile baby and then lived a fragile existence as a human and then died and showed his deity. When we celebrate Christmas, the nativity is a starting place, but it's not the ending place. And I think for a lot of us, when we jump into the season... We are full-grown adults and we're worshiping this babe and then we leave the baby and we treat Jesus sometimes like a baby, like we're in charge. <coughs> we run the show. We've decided where to put the nativity in our house and we've decided where to put all the presents in the tree. We have articulated all that and I'm not placing blame or shame other than to say we have taken the image and we've gotten much more meaning out of the image of Christmas. 
than returning like John does to the words and letting the words flush out and become full and, and drive our imaginations to be infinite, to be an endless well for us. And so, when we dive into this text, we look at this question of if he is the word, well then who is this Jesus? If he's not a babe in a manger at Christmas, who is Jesus? And Jesus asked this question. This is one of the most important questions that Jesus asked in Matthew 16, verse 14. says, they replied, he asked them, who do people say I am? And the disciples replied, and they say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Because there had been prophecies of the Messiah. There had been, in the end of the Old Testament, there had been a prophecy that an Elijah will come. And so they say, people say all these things about you. This is what people are saying. This is the intellectual discourse that's happening. And Jesus looks them in the eye, and he says the most penetrating and important question that we have to ask ourselves today. I get all of that, is basically what he's saying. He says, but what about you? Jesus asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And so the question I pose for us today, as we jump into a week full of all sorts of obligations, things that are on our mind, to-do lists, priorities that we've set, expectations that we've created, things that we want to go the way we want them to go. Jesus is asking you this question this week. This week, who do you say that I am? And what he's really asking Simon Peter is commit to what you're going to answer with. Commit to the words that are going to come out of your mouth. Think about it. It's one thing to say, people say. People say this is what Christmas is. What do you say that Christmas is? And how do you live that out this week? How do you live out what Christmas is to you? Is Christmas the cultural conventions that are around you? Is Christmas family above all else? Is Christmas about your generosity? Is Christmas about all that you can give? Is Christmas a reflection of where you've come? Or is Christmas about the question, who do you say I am? Because John answers this question in a number of different ways. In verse 3, he says, Jesus, the word, you are our creator. So in Christmas, we are worshiping and giving gratitude to our creator who gave us Everything In verse 4, he says, you are a life source. In him was life, and that life was the light of mankind. And then he says, he is a victor over evil. We are victorious. And then he says, the character of God is the character of Christ. And then he will go on, as we talked about in the Advent with the peace candle... He will go on to give that to all of us. He will go on to say, not just me, but I have given it to you so that in you I dwell. I dwell. 
Christmas is a declaration to all people that Jesus is the answer to all of our questions. So this Christmas, anything you're striving after is Jesus. He's the answer to it. You're looking a lot of different places to deliver this week. You're delivering by showing up to people, by being a certain way, by giving certain things, by hosting well. Whatever the things are that our minds are wrapped in, we're we're doing those things, but why? Why are we doing them? And John has a simple answer. He has a total declaration. He says, Jesus has always been for all people. He says he was life. He has always been for all people. And so what he's really doing is he's calling us to task. He's saying, there are no more excuses. There's no one else to blame. We aren't in the position where we can say, but God, you didn't give this to me. But God, you can't do this to me. But God, this isn't the way my life was supposed to be. But God, it's too hard. But God, you don't seem fair. We don't get to ask. We we can ask those questions, but we know the answer to those questions. I am life, and through me is the light of all mankind. God desires to give his total blessings to us. In the hymn, O Come All Ye Faithful, the meaning of Christmas is to come and behold him. To just see him. I don't know about you, but I struggle on Christmas morning to be seeing Jesus. On Christmas morning, in fact, that's probably one of the furthest things from my mind. I'm thinking about the day ahead of me. I'm thinking about everyone's expectations. I'm thinking if everyone can be happy by the time today is done, I can just not make a fool out of myself. We have a win today. That's what I'm thinking on Christmas, right? I am just trying to get it to be the postcard image of what I had in my mind for the last month and a half as I was blowing money on it, as I was all these things, all these ways that I was worshiping the day, right? I exposed my idols right there. Like, we think about what we are spending. What am I giving to this? The time, the plane ticket, the time I'm giving, the way I'm sacrificing to just endure my family. All of the things that we're thinking about, right, as we tackle Christmas, are totally preoccupying us. And they're totally about us. They're just 100% about us. We're just trying to get out. I was just at a family reunion, right? You're just trying to get out looking good, right? Like, that's what you're trying to do. The furthest thing from our mind is that Jesus is like, look, that's not it. I'm just asking you, who am I to you? Because I have all of this under control no matter, no matter how sideways it goes. No matter how many things don't go the way you expected them to go, no matter how difficult the relationships are, no matter how hard it is, no matter all the things that you don't get that you really, really wanted it would make Christmas so great, and this year you can't do it. He says, you're making it about all of the wrong stuff. The question you should be asking is who is king? 
who is king over your life. And verse 5 says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this is comforting on one level. We love this idea that the the sermon is called The Light Shines in the Darkness. We're, We're working an advent towards this light. Here's the thing, though, guys. The light is invading the darkness. And guess where we are as fallen people outside of Jesus? We are darkness. There is going to be a war on your heart this week because you are anchoring parts of your life in darkness and God is going to come in and seek to obliterate them. The reason things will be hard is because God is going to come in through Christ and he's going to say, you want to make this about Jesus? It's going to change everything about your holiday. I'm going to break down all of your idols this week. I'm going to show you who you are without me. I'm going to bring you to your knees if I need to because that's what the light does. Darkness doesn't exist in the light. It eradicates it. That's what's happening. And so that's why if we get away from the postcard image that we paint, the reality of the light shining into the darkness unsettles us. Jesus is a gift, yes, but a gift that disrupts our status quo. He is a gift not deserved nor necessary from God's existence. And yet God chose for Jesus to be born because it was utterly essential for us. Because it was a gracious act of love to reclaim us. You see, the entire Old Testament is sort of a progressive. Last week, Michael Miller talked about the good king, bad king dynamic in Israel and how you just kind of get more and more bad kings and less and less good kings. It's just a, it's just a downhill slope, right? And, and then you get to the end of the Old Testament. Jesus, God's chosen people of Israel. These are his chosen people. The rest of the people are just all over the place. And this is Israel, his like last group. And then... After Malachi, if you look at the end of your Old Testament and then you look at the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew, there is a 400-year gap of utter silence. 400 years where not a new word is uttered of divine inspiration to prophets, to people of God's presence. They enter a desert. And they have a promise that the true light is going to come into the world, that the Messiah is going to come. Yes, this makes them overjoyed because in some ways they're getting it wrong. This is going to utterly disrupt their status quo. And what happens when Jesus is born? From the first moment, the status quo of Israel is utterly disrupted. Everything they wanted from a Messiah, they would not get. They would not get a ruler. They would not get a strong man. The rabbis would not get a teacher that they got along with. Right? Like nothing would go the way that they had planned. The ultimate gift disrupted everything. And this is what John says. He says, he was in the world And though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And if you think of this as a prologue, I think of this as like the leaves on a book. If you're in like the airport and you're looking at hardcover books and they have those leaves on the inside. And they have like, like, they have like the tease, right? It's like the trailer version of the story. It's like the prologue is written out and then there's just a dot, dot, dot. 
and the world did not recognize him. He's the creator of the universe, and nobody knew who he was. In fact, and everybody despised him. That's the tease, right? That's what John's giving us. He's saying, here is the central irony of the gospel and your entire life, is that the thing that will help you most is the thing that is going to unsettle you the most. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So he came to the world. The world didn't get him. Okay, but then he came to Israel, right? Israel should get him. Nope. His own do not receive him. And this is the setting for which we celebrate Christmas. The beginnings of a total reframing of everything in the Old Testament. Everything that we knew. Everything that they knew. And what John calls a double grace, which we'll get to in a minute. Okay, so I think of this, I think of this like, we'll get to this in just a second. Think about it this way. What do vampires not like, right? Yeah, garlic and silver bullets and wooden silver. Yeah, we can go, we can go a long ways. I'm thinking of blade right now. I'm thinking about light. <laughs> give, me, give me a bone here. Um, that they have built their existence in the darkness. They have, they have built everything. And so the more civilization that you build around that, the more that has to be destroyed. The more that you build and you anchor on that, the more that's going to get wiped out. And so why is it so hard for some people to even, they might get faith, they might understand that they need Jesus, but the amount of disruption that it's going to cause their life is so unprecedented and so painful that they won't do it. That's the rich young ruler, right? But it's also all of us. There are parts of our life where we're not asking the question because we're afraid to ask it. We're afraid for Jesus to look at us and say, no, what do you think? What do you say? How are you going to change your life from your answer? There's a story that I've been reading my kids, and it's, it's from the Brothers Grimm. So the Brothers Grimm, famous German collectors of sort of folklore and fairy tale, right? And the story is called King Thrushbeard, and I was not familiar with the story. Maybe some of you are. Um, the story starts like this. A king is married and, and to the queen, and then she passes away. Shortly after, they give birth to, the, to their only daughter. Right? So, so here is the king alone parenting his only daughter, the princess. And, and a, the king does what a lot of dads would do with their only daughter. He just lavishes her, gives her everything she wants. Kingdom's yours. Never a no in the kingdom for the princess Nina, right? Never a no for her. And then she grows up at the time to be wed. And, and the king brings suitors. He brings royal princes, other kings, and he says, surely one of these will suit you well. And time and time again, she thumbs her nose at them. She dismisses them. She won't even come out of her room to see them. They, don't, they, they have too long of a nose, right? Or they, they, they're not wearing the right clothing. They don't suit her tastes. And finally, the last, the last king comes to the gate, and, and, and the king introduces him as King Thrushbeard, and she says, 
Your beard's so huge, it's like a bird could live in it. Get out, get out of here. I don't, want to, I don't want you. I don't want any of you. None of you fit what I want. And so the king sends him away. And then he corners his daughter and he says, look, you have made enemies out of all of our friends. So here's the deal. Tomorrow, the first person to walk in those doors, you're married. First person that walks in. And so the next morning, the first person that walks in is a poor minstrel playing his flute or his lute, right? And disheveled, clownish. And he says, I'm, I'm going to be true to my word here. You're getting married to him. And so that's what happens. And they send them off and the minstrel goes out with her and wanders in his vagrant lifestyle through the woods and through different villages, playing his songs, always with the princess in tow. And they get to his little hut and he asks her, cook a meal for me. She doesn't know how to cook. He says, what are you useful? What, what, what can you do? Make some pottery and go sell it. And she makes pots and they're so fragile that a, that a horseman comes over and breaks them all to pieces. And so finally she says, he says, look, just get a scullery made job up at the castle. She says, well, what castle? He goes, we're in the kingdom of King Thrushbeard. And she goes, oh. I should have married him. I made a big mistake. Okay, I guess I'll go be the school anyway. So she goes up, she just cleans pots with the cook. And at that point, she realizes everything that she actually wanted. When push comes to shove, when she got what was given to her, she realizes this isn't the life I wanted to live. And I can see why now. Nothing fit, nothing fit what I wanted. And so she commits to it. She says, fine, I'm starting to see now. I'm starting to see what I did and I will do this job. And so she works and she works. She comes back to the minstrel and she goes back up day after day after day. And finally, one day she admits, she says, I'm worthless. I, I can't do any of the things I want. I'm not worthy of anything I was looking for. What was I thinking? It was all because of my father. He gave me all that I had and I took it for granted. And she comes back and tells that the minstrel and he says, he says, finally, you're ready. And he sends her back up. And that day, in, in, the, in the great feast that they prepare, she's, she's carrying out the cake, right? And in that great fit, feast, there sits King Thrushbeard, the minstrel, one and the same, right? And the moral of this story of course, is about pride. It's a cautionary tale, like all the grim cautionary tales, saying be careful what you think you deserve. Well, here's, here's that, that tale gets so far, right? That's not the gospel. That tale gets so far. It tells us something important. It says, if everything's not fitting your preferences, you might be blind to what you actually need. And I get that. But here's the other thing. We don't see what the story misses is that we don't see that the minstrel was of our own making. It was the king all along. And we've made it into the minstrel because we didn't get what we wanted. Right? So if I had to retell this story, if I look at this and I say, how does the gospel inform our stories? I can say, I can see, I can see this. I can see how in her pride, she dismissed everything. She couldn't see the joy of anything. She couldn't see the blessings that were all around her. And then she starts to realize, I'm in 
his kingdom. I live in his kingdom. But even now that I live in his kingdom, I'm with this guy that, that doesn't fit anything I want. I still wish I was with, I was married to the king. I still want something. And what I'm getting at here is that we make ourselves blind to the blessings. The problem with Princess Nina was that she made herself blind because things didn't fit her expectations. If you look at the rabbis, if you look at the people that dis- disowned Jesus and said, there's no way you could be the Messiah, what was the thing in common? Jesus didn't fit their expectations. They had framed what kind of blessing they needed, and they had said, this is the kind of blessing I need for my life. I'm a princess in need of a king, but not just any king has to look a certain way. He has to fit my fancy. And the moral of that story is saying, you need a reality check. You need to see how blessed you are being, and you need to see how everything that is happening is a blessing. I look at the Old Testament, and we tend to frame God as this uh, wrathful God to everyone outside of Israel, but actually reframe some of these stories. What happens after Cain murders Abel? God says, I will never let anyone lay a hand on you. Nobody's going to have retribution on you. You actually get to live a long life. As As long as you can have to repent, I'm giving it to you. It's actually a blessing, Cain. To Nineveh, we think about the story of Jonah and we think about Jonah and it's all about him and all about his stuff. He's going to ask Nineveh to repent, to get an entire nation state, the largest capital city, to get them to see and repent. And what do they do? They repent. God's grace is throughout the Bible and it just doesn't fit our expectations and so we don't read it that way. We see the Old Testament, God is a wrathful God. We see him as an angry God. We can't reconcile. We hear that, that Jesus is God, one and the same, that he was at the creation at the beginning. We can't reconcile that. We don't see that. So we separate them. We separate them on extremes. And what John is saying is, no, you don't understand. You have all these expectations of what you want to see. And it's getting in the way. And what the princess does that's powerful, that's compelling, is she gets to the end of herself. He says, if I actually think about it, I have no skills. I have no abilities. The only thing I was basing everything off of was the status that the Father gave to me. And then that was removed, and I saw how empty I was. So that's the power of the story. Now, the Grimm brothers didn't see that in the same way. You could read the story lots of different ways. You could read into all the gender stuff. There's all sorts of stuff in that story you could read to and get it distracted. But here's the point I'm trying to make is that she was the daughter of the father who wanted to bless her. And she wanted nothing to do with him. And it took someone coming to reclaim her. And she just couldn't see it. She couldn't see the person because he didn't fit her expectations. So in Christmas for us, have we put God in a sort of box? Have we said, I know for me, my Jesus has to be a certain cultural way, right? I, I only worship a Jesus that listens to this kind of music and, and is in, a, in kind of a hipper church because I just can't handle some of these churches, right? And we actually get so put off. I had this experience this week. I got so put off by another church, by the way it looked, by the way it felt, by the pastor, that it got in the way of my relationship with Jesus, 
And I thought, something just messed up inside of me. That I could like a certain image. None of the doctrine is necessarily different. It's just, it's just the trimmings. It's the image that's getting in the way of the words. Is your image of who you've made Christ into in your life getting in the way of who he is this Christmas? Is, are you seeing him expecting a certain thing of you and you're not delivering? Right? Does he want you to be a certain place in your life and you're not there yet? And he's mad at you. Right? We've got to let go of all of that, all of those expectations of ourselves, all those things we're putting on ourselves, all those preferences. Because here's what John says in his first letter. He says, the one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. The letting go is what is freeing you. The letting go of how hospitable you need to be and your status and how put together you need to be and the power you need to present and the congeniality you need to have and the way your kids ought to behave, the amount of money you ought to have in comparison to your siblings, all of these things that we get wrapped up into are getting in the way and you're not even able to witness. You're so preoccupied that you can't see that everything around you is a blessing. See, the princess thought that, that everything was actually a curse that happened to her. Oh, I've been put with this guy and now I'm doomed for the rest of my life. And look, I'm getting lorded over by being in the king's territory. I'm getting lorded over and I'm getting demeaned and I'm seeing how horrible I am. And God just wants me to see how horrible I am. Some of us get locked in that cycle. John has an answer. He says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And he says, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. Now we're back to that double grace thing I mentioned. What, are we, what is he talking about? For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you have read that and said, oh, what, what's being said there is that the law was this sort of uh, archaic, um, draconian sort of set of rules that locked us into something. And Jesus freed us from it. And we're free. And now we can do whatever we want. That's like the image that a lot of us have gotten painted of the new covenant. And while there is some truth to what that's saying, he's saying, no, 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 no. You're looking at it wrong. You're looking at all of these stories wrong. The law was a grace. Without the law, how would you see my character? How would you know how to live? The law was good for you. And you see the rules as not fitting your preferences. You see the things that are asked of you as not being, as being limiting. And so you're glad to be rid of them. And he says, no. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. He's basically said, I gave you a second chance and I'm giving you another one. Right? I gave you a second chance. Y'all didn't see it. And so here's another one. And this time, I'm going to give you a God that looks just like you in your image with all of your humanness. Please see him. That's what's being said at Christmas. And so Jesus, this man that we tend to, that we tend to paint 
in just this sort of soft palette glow, right? Like the soft lens focus and his hair is gleaming. And like we just tend to frame it always as this sort of the holiness, the way we see the holiness softens Jesus too much because Jesus comes to create attention in our hearts. If you don't have attention in your heart when you read the Bible, if you're not feeling exposed of what you ought not be doing, you're not reading the Bible, right? Every passage exposes our hearts. It's his intention. It's his double grace. His grace of saying, you didn't get it the first time. Let me show it to you another way. There's a thing called tact. Like when you sail, right? Those of you who are at least a little bit familiar with sail, when you go upwind sailing, you have to do it in an interesting way, right? You have to tack the boat. You have to hang the sail in such a way that you're catching the wind and you're kind of going back and forth at a diagonal, right? You're kind of pitching it this way and that way. You're changing. The same thing's happening. You're going upwind. We're getting you there. We're just doing it in a different way. So the Bible is cohesive. The Bible, got, Jesus was there from the beginning. It was Jesus who said, Cain can't die. It was Jesus who came and said, the people of Nineveh. It's Jesus who does all of that redemption throughout the whole Bible. And what we're seeing is God is saying, I'm going to give a double grace. I'm going to take a different tact here. We're going to try this a different way. Can you see it now? So Christmas is God illuminating himself in a way so that we can see it. So that when Jesus, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say I am? Peter can answer because Jesus was like the friend who wouldn't do a phone call. He had to fly out and sit down with you. Jesus comes and he sits you down and he says, this isn't going to work on text message. We have to sit down together. I need to be there with you. I'm going to come into your stuff with you. That's the Jesus of Christmas. He gets in it. And he says, you can't see it. You've got too much stuff in the way. Let's start getting some of it out of the way, right? Let's, let's get the gifts out of the way for a minute. Let's get the tree out. Let's get the decorations out of the way. Let's get the schedule out of the way. Let's get the expectations for family out of the way. Let's get the expectations of everything you're not that you thought you would be between last Christmas and this Christmas. I mean, how many people? Come on. Between last Christmas, where I thought my house would be, it's like a milestone in our life. And we gauge and we compare and we say, ah, all right, well, I'll live with it. But it's not where I wanted to be. This isn't where I wanted to be, God. And it's a little hard for me to not feel like you've cursed me. It's a little hard for me to, see, to think that you haven't blessed me. And he says, you're looking at it all wrong. He says, you're here. You're worshiping me. You have community. You have people who will sit down with you in your stuff. Because my spirit is in them. And that's what I do. That's how we do things in the church. We sit down with each other and we get stuff done with each other. And we need that so bad because when we are in our own spaces, when we retreat to our room because the suitor isn't good enough for us, we spin everything around in our head. And we think of all the ways that it ought to be. Meanwhile, people are trying to bang down our door to get to us. Our problem with Christmas is not that we make too little of each other. We're making plenty of each other at Christmas. The problem with Christmas is that we make way too little of Jesus. We isolate Christmas from Good Friday and from Easter, and we isolate it to this moment. 
And we don't see that it's the whole thing. A.T. Robertson writes about the book of John. He says, the most wonderful of all books. He says, here's the question that it gives to you. What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be. Someday your heart will be asking, what will he do with me? Let's pray. Lord, you've given us, you've given us all of it. And it feels like too much. It just feels like too much. You've put it all out there for us. God, when you sent your son, it got real. You gave us a second grace, a final grace. And you said, this is what I'm talking about. And we are sitting here wrestling with that every day. We're counting the cost. And you're asking us, I'm asking you right now, Peter, you're saying, who do you say I am? And what will that mean? So Lord, convict us today, move us, change us, that this Christmas would be unlike any other Christmas for us, that we would live it, worshiping you, our Lord and Savior and Redeemer. In your son's name, amen.